This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. So we've been speaking about the importance of spiritual formation and how God calls us to walk in holiness before him. A big way that the Lord transforms your heart and my heart to look more like his heart is through holiness, is through this calling of being called out of the world and being made distinct and separate and different than what we're surrounded with and inundated with every day. And our main text for this series has been 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. Go there with me. I'm gonna be reading from the ESV. This has been our primary text for the series. Here's what it says. As obedient children, do not be conformed All right, do not be patterned after the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct since it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament scripture, you shall be holy for I am holy. My big idea for this series has been simply this. Are you ready for it? God has called you and I to be holy because he is holy, because he is holy. Remember, holiness is about not perfection, How many of you guys know none of us are perfect? How many of you made a few mistakes yesterday, got mad at your wife or husband, kicked the dog, ran over? No, just (laughs) making sure, all right? How many of you had a bad day this week, all right? Holiness is not about perfection. It's not about religious legalism. It's not about you meeting some requirement that you cannot meet, no. Holiness is about God's distinct calling on your life, you being set apart and made to look different than the world. And so it's about being formed, as I said, to look more and more like Jesus. And this happens by way of our habits, because our habits define who we become. You might want to write that down if you're taking notes today. Your habits define who you become. And this is why we want to discover some holy habits for our lives. So far, we've looked at the holy habits of prayer and fasting. We've looked at the holy habit of spirit and truth, what it means to be a spirit and truth Christian or believer. And then last week, we talked about worship and presence. Today, we're going to tackle our next habit, what I'm calling fellowship and unity. Fellowship and unity. Sharing in God's life together. This could be a subtitle for my message. Sharing in God's life together as a loving family. At Courageous Church, one of our core values, one of our distinctives is a life shared together as loving family. A life shared together as loving family. I've said this before, and you guys will hear me say this probably over and over and over, but I believe the church in these days is called to look less like a corporation and more like a family. The church isn't a sole proprietorship. The church isn't an LLC. The church isn't a business. The church isn't even an institution, even though sometimes it can be institutionalized. But the church is meant to be a living, vibrant family made up of imperfect people like you and like me, all trying to figure out how to do this thing called life. The church is called to be a family. How many of you guys know that the family can be a little messy? You guys all come from messy families, right? There's no perfect family. How many of you would say, Pastor Jason, my family's weird? Yes. Family is supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be different. And we all have a little bit of mess in our family. We all have a little dysfunction somewhere. Maybe it's a crazy Uncle Larry, or maybe it's a mother-in-law, or maybe it's our spouse, or maybe it's us. Maybe we're the crazy one. Turn to somebody and say, maybe I'm the crazy one. <laughs> we all have a little bit of a mess in our families, which is why 
I think sometimes it's unfair for us to hold the church to a standard that she cannot meet. Why? Because the church is made up of imperfect people who are crazy, weird, and messy as well. And if you're looking for a perfect church, the minute you came here, it's no longer perfect. So I'm sorry to tell you, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Even if I wish it did, it doesn't exist because church is family and family is messy and family is complicated. How many of you guys know family can be a little complicated? Some of you guys are dealing with some complicated family members right now. Some of you are gonna have some complicated family members over for the Super Bowl later today, I'm sure. And you'll be biting your tongue not to say something that you later regret. But family is messy and for family life to work, there has to be something of value that unites us, a common ground, a, a shared value, if you will, something that we hold in common. There's actually a word for this in the Bible, and it's the Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship, or it's often translated as fellowship in our English Bibles, but it emphasizes this idea of us being held together by something that we hold or share in common, something of value, something that brings us into common unity. It's where we get the word community from. Or common union, it's where we get the word communion from. It's the same idea. Which means for family life to work, there has to be koinonia, there has to be fellowship, there has to be unity, something that binds us together, that brings us together. In the church, that something is the person named Jesus. Jesus is the one who binds us together, amen? Who brings us together in unity with him, yes, that's important, but also with each other. Because God has called us to be in fellowship and unity with one another as well. We're not bound together by race. We're not bound together by skin color. We're not bound together by creed or political preferences. Come on, somebody. We're not bound together by education or the lack thereof. Some of you graduated from the School of Hard Knocks, I know. We're not bound together by economic status or even our generational differences. As a church, we're a multi-generational, multi-cultural, multi-ethnic church, and I love that because that's what heaven looks like. Made up of people from all different tribes and tongues, from all different generations, and I, I think that's a part of what we're called to emulate here on earth because we're bound together in fellowship and unity with the Son, with Jesus. Jesus is the unifier. He's the one that we're in common unity with so that we can then share in that unity together. Listen to what Galatians chapter three, verses 27 through 28 says. It says it this way. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not denying that there aren't things that that make us different, what he's trying to do is illustrate the, the, the common ground that we all share together, the thing that unites us, the one thing that brings us together, and it's who? It's Jesus. Jesus is the person that we all have in common, if, if you've put your faith, hope, and trust in him, that is. I wonder if we believe this in the church today. Now, there's so much division, there's so much strife and chaos, and even amongst people that sit on one side of the pews and those that sit on the other. And I see it in our lives and I see it in our families, I see it in our homes, but I believe that God is calling us to be a people of unity. And unity is something that we have to fight for, especially when it's so easy for us to be divided. We live in a, a cultural moment and a time in which it's really easy to be divided, amen? And it's really easy to see our neighbor as a threat. It's really easy to see our family members as a threat. It's even easy to see our spouse as a threat. But God didn't call us to come on fight with each other. He called us to fight for each other. And unity fights for each other, amen? Yeah. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. And I thank you, God, that as we we step into this holy habit of fellowship and unity, we do so as a people who need unity in our lives. We need unity in our homes. We need unity in our marriages. We need unity, Lord, in our workplace. We need unity within ourselves, even within our own emotional well-being. God, we need unity so that then we can be in unity with each other as your body expressed on this earth, as your beautiful called out and holy ones, Lord. And I thank you for that today. I thank you that, Lord, as we turn to your word, and as we engage in this holy habit of fellowship and unity, we could do so as a people of faith, hope, and love who, who know, Lord God, that you are the one that brings us together, nothing else. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week with Hebrews chapter 10. I've been kind of camping out in Hebrews lately. I don't know about you guys. Sometimes you just get into a season where the Lord highlights a particular passage of scripture or a particular book, and you just find yourself drawn there. Right now, I'm just really feeling the Lord drawing us as a church into the reality that Hebrews paints for us. So we're gonna pick up where we left off last week, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, and here's what it says. Therefore, since we have what? Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of the lamb, the worthy one, Jesus, who we've been singing about, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Church, when we gather as a family, we're not just singing a couple songs and we're not just hopefully hearing a decent message. No, we're entering into what? The holy places of God by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened up for us through the veil of his own flesh that has been torn. We do this every time we celebrate communion. Actually, in just a few moments, we're going to do that together as a church. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus spilling his blood and allowing his body to be broken and torn and bruised for your behalf and for mine. And so that we can come together and find wholeness and unity with him. The writer would go on to say this just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 12, just a couple chapters later, actually. In verse 21, it says this in 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What a picture. And he goes on into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, most of us who didn't grow up Jewish or don't have a Hebraic background or understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, we might read this and completely gloss over it and go, what in the world is that even all about? And my heart for you today is that I can hopefully make sense of some of this for you. But Hebrews paints a picture of worship, of corporate gathering worship. When we come together as the ecclesia or the called out ones, the assembly of, of God, we are doing something powerful. We are entering into the holy places of God where all of this takes place. Innumerable angels, come on, those that have entered into heaven before us, God, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, Jesus, and the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's so much going on when we worship. And my concern for us as the American westernized church is that we've completely neglected this reality. We've come into our church services expecting a rock concert when what we should have been doing is coming in expecting a holy encounter with a holy God. 
He says, you've come to Mount Zion, this holy Jerusalem. How many of you guys know this, this heavenly Jerusalem? How many of you guys know there's an earthly Jerusalem? There's also a heavenly Jerusalem. Right now, my wife is actually on her way to earthly Jerusalem. She's headed to Israel right now, which is cool. So keep her in your prayers. And as I told our team, keep me in your prayers as well, because the next 10 to 12 days, it'll be dad on the case. Daddy daycare, you know what I'm saying? Making meals, making it happen. It's going to be good. I think that's just called being dad. I don't think there's any like, you know, right? Mom, mom, dad, you guys understand. It's just being mom and dad, right? Regardless of whether someone else isn't there. But, but she's going to be in earthly Jerusalem in about, I don't know, 12 to 14 hours, I think. But how many of you guys know that everything that we see on earth in relationship to what God has created and made and ordained is patterned after what God has already created in the heavens? When God gave the pattern of the tabernacle and the model of the tabernacle to Moses, and he said, this is how I want you to worship. This is how I want you to conduct your lives. This is what I want it to look like, sound like, feel like, and taste like, and smell like. He was doing so after something that was already happening in the heavens. That's, what's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here. And my concern for us is that we don't understand that. In fact, we're so flippant about it. We come in with our Starbucks coffee, we're like, all right, let's see if this, this awesome worship leader with the tight skinny jeans can, can rock out and make me happy. Or we come in, you know, we're a little grouchy. We're, we're wiping the sleep out of our eye. We're, you know, maybe we, we had a little hangover because we drank too much wine the night before. I don't know. <laughs> but I wonder, when we come into this place, do we do so as people who have this holy expectation that something holy is about to happen? Something distinct and different and separate from the world is supposed to happen. And for too long, we've patterned our services and our church and our ministries after things that take place in the world when we should be patterning them after things that are already happening in the heavens. That's why Jesus would tell his disciples, when you pray, pray this way. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done where? On earth as it is where? As it is in Nashville, as it is at the Grammys, as it is in Hollywood, as it is at Disneyland, as it is in the Bahamas, no! as it is in the heavens. Why? Because you're coming to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Oh Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see what's happening all around us in this city today as we lift up your praise. You're coming to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, the judge of the earth who sees what other people don't see into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those who've already been made holy because of their status and faith in Christ, and to Jesus who is speaking a better word over your life today because he's the mediator of a new covenant. And that covenant was a covenant that he started with us the minute he went to the cross and spilled his blood and allowed his body to be torn and broken for your behalf and mine. That's the covenant that we have. And it's being, with, it's being upheld by him, not by us. So even on your good day, come on, you're in covenant. Even on your bad day, you're in covenant. If your faith, hope, and trust is anchored in the Lord, if you've built your house on the rock, the rock of ages, Jesus Christ himself, come on, somebody. And this is why worship is so powerful. And it's so costly, because Jesus spilled his own blood for it. See, I think sometimes we, we just approach him casually and flippantly because we don't realize the cost. And I think that, in this next age, and particularly the season that we're entering into as a church, my heart, and I believe the Lord's heart for us, is that we would see this as a holy opportunity to encounter him in fresh and living ways, in ways that are holy and distinct and different, amen? We're coming to a reality, a spiritual reality that we don't always understand. So he's encouraging us to remember, to remember this, and to, to recenter our hearts and our lives and our souls in this reality. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. 
And before I say anything else, I want to stress the fact that our, our fellowship and our unity with the Lamb of God, with Jesus himself and with each other is only because of what he has done. Because of what Jesus has done, he's made a way for us to do this, to come confidently before the throne of God and ask for grace. The Bible says when we do that, we're going to find it. But to have confidence as we draw near to him. Hebrews 10 verse 21 goes on to say, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, he's talking about Jesus here. Let us do what? Draw near, not shrink back. It's funny to me when things are going wrong in people's lives, I, I always notice they stop coming to church when that's the time when they should be drawing near all the more. If you had a, a moment of relapse or you found yourself struggling with temptation or you spent too long on Pornhub, come on, that's the time when you should draw near not shrink away. And I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I have with people who've left the church because they're still wrestling with guilt and shame and it's driven them to run from the presence of God when what it should do is drive them to run to the presence of God, to the Holy One and say, God, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. Jesus, I need you. The Bible says when we do that, when we come before him, when we enter into the holy places of God, we can ask for grace and mercy in our time of need and find more than enough. I'm very thankful that when we sin, come on, there's, a, there's a, a savior whose blood speaks a better word. It speaks a better word. And I'm thankful for that today. So he calls us to draw near, to press in with hearts that are formed in faith. Number one today, our fellowship and unity with God and with each other is built on faith. It's built on faith. When we come together, when we do what Hebrews here calls drawing near, we're doing so as a people of faith, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's essentially blind trust. It's, it's about where you place your trust. And we're doing that every time we come together, right? We're, we're, we're placing our trust in a God that we cannot see, right? I don't see him, right? Do you? And we're learning how to do this together. That's why our, our gatherings as a church family need to be built on faith, not feelings. I hope that when you come in here, you, the hair stands up on the back of your net and you feel the presence of God and you have warm, fuzzy feelings and your heart melts like wax before him and you leave going, oh, that was amazing. Sometimes people say, oh, what a great vibe. <laughs> but can I tell you something? More than a great vibe, more than great feelings, God calls us to be a people of faith. We walk not by sight, but by faith, amen? So we're called to do this in faith. We draw near in faith with hearts in full assurance of faith. See, faith is the only thing that gives you an assurance that what you're believing for and pressing into and going to God for, you can have. Otherwise, why do that? Amen? Here's what Hebrews says, uh, chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to approach God. My, my paraphrase, for he who comes to God, he who approaches God, must believe that he is must have faith that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, God wants to reward your faith. He's not opposed to you being blessed. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. This is why over the last 21 days of prayer and fasting, we've been seeking him together as a church. We've been pressing in. We've been trying to drown out the noise and turn up the volume so that we can hear what God is saying. But we do this as a people of faith, not just feelings, which is why our fellowship and unity must be built on faith. As a church, we can't approach God any other way and expect his heart to be moved. That's why when, when God listens in from his heavenly throne room on what we're doing here in our worship, you know what he's looking for? He's not looking for perfect voices. How many of you would say, Pastor Jason, I've got one of those voices that only Jesus loves? Quite a few of you. 
How many of you say, Jason, I, I am a, I am a amazing singer in the shower. <laughs> I got one of those voices that just echoes right and like the reverb and all the good, right? But how many of you guys know God's not looking for and listening for perfect voices? As great as that is, what he's really listening for, what he's really putting his ear to the earth for is faith. Is there faith in the heart of the believer who's singing that song? Worthy. Is there faith in the heart of the believer who's saying, make room in my heart? Is there faith in the heart of the believer that says, be lifted up and be made higher in my life and let other things come down? Is there faith in the, in the soup of your soul? Is there faith? It's the ingredient he's looking for because we're called to enter in to worship into the holy places, into the heavens through faith. And we do this when we enter into holy places to experience holy communion with holy God. And we can only do it through faith. So number one, our fellowship and unity with God and each other is built on faith. Number two today, are you with me? Our fellowship and unity with God and each other is anchored in hope. Anchored in hope. The writer of Hebrews 10 goes on to say this in verse 23. Let us hold fast. Uh, the Greek word here is actually cling to. How many of you know somebody that's clingy? This is your permission to be clingy. A person who holds fast or clings to their confession of hope without wavering, without giving up. For he, the Lord, who promised is faithful. What does he mean by let us hold fast to our confession of hope? A confession is something that you openly declare and speak over your life. It's something that you repeat openly. When I confess, for example, uh, my sins to another person, I'm speaking and declaring them out in the open. When I confess, for example, my faith to someone, I'm speaking and declaring what I believe and where I've placed my trust. When I confess my hope, I'm speaking and declaring what I'm believing for and what I'm looking forward to. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us to hold fast to it, to cling to it, and to do so without wavering. In other words, to not give up on it, to not give up on hope. God doesn't want you to give up on hope. Why? Because without hope, our hearts become sick. Our hearts begin to erode from the inside out. Without hope, we have nothing to look forward to. Without hope, we have nothing to believe in. Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that's why when we come together, we do so as a people of faith, but we do so because he who has promised is faithful, which means he will not disappoint you or rob you of the hope that comes from knowing Jesus. Because Hebrews 6 reminds us Jesus actually is our hope. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Listen to this. Hebrews 6, verse 19 through 20. We have this hope as a what? Anchor for our soul. Firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What is he talking about? He's talking about the heavenly tabernacle again. He's talking about what's going on all around us where our forerunner, Jesus, has already entered on our behalf. You see, Jesus made a way for you and I to enter in, but he had to die first, and he had to be raised, and he had to ascend before we could go into his presence, which is why when we come together, we do so because Jesus has made a way through hope. If you notice right outside that door, there's a big banner. It says, Hope, Healing, Courage, and Life, and right at the top of that list is hope because hope prepares the way. Hope opens the door. Hope allows you and I to enter in because of what we hold to and believe and confess if we don't waver in it, if we don't turn back from it, if we don't become disappointed because God's timing is not our timing. But if we hold fast to our confession of hope, he who has promised is faithful and he will reward your faith. So our fellowship and unity with God is built on this reality, on faith, which leads us to hope. And number three today, our fellowship and unity with God and each other produces love. 
Produce his love. Hebrews 10, 24, the very next verse goes on to say this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love. If there's one particular thing or activity that we should be especially focused on, especially in this day and age in which we live, it should be this. It should be love. People should look at us and go, man, those people really love each other and they really love others well. It's interesting to me that love is the very first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5. It's what he declares should be our primary goal and focus as a church. Listen to what he says to his church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I love this scripture. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. How many of you guys have known a few people like that? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am something. I am nothing, he says. You guys, the tone and scope of Paul's letter here is correctional. All right, there is some really weird and wacky stuff that's gone down with the folks at Corinth. I mean, there's a dude sleeping with his stepmom. Even on my worst day, I'm not even considering that as an option. <laughs> and I hope you aren't either. If you are, we'll pray for you. Tim and I will do some deliverance ministry right here at the altar. But there's some weird and wacky stuff going on. Dudes sleeping with their stepmoms, people getting all whacked out on tongues and prophecy and having ecstatic experiences, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. People getting divided over who's a better preacher. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Well, I like Apollos because Apollos wears the skinny jeans. Well, I like Paul because he only preaches from the King James Version. Divisions, craziness, charismania, dudes sleeping with their stepmoms, weird and wacky stuff. So Paul's trying to set some order here. He's trying to bring some correction, and it's important. And listen to what he says in verse 8, just a few verses down. He says, listen, guys, as for prophecies, prophetic words, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it's going to pass away too. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, he says, but, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of all these things is love. What's he trying to do here? He's trying to bring them back to a unifying center point to one thing. He's like, I love that you guys are so crazy and you're so zealous after so many things and you got all this other stuff going on, but here's, what I, here's where I'd really want you to excel in love. Do we want to be a people of faith? Absolutely, right? As I just said, a people built on faith. Do we want to be a people whose hope is anchored in the Lord? Yes, absolutely. But the greatest of all these, he says, is not faith, and it's not hope, but it's love. It's love. This is why I said at the beginning, one of our great core values here at this church is that we would be a people, a family, bound together in love. People that do life together as a loving family. Because without love, we're just an institution. Without love, we're just a social club. Without love, we're just like the world who knows not the ways of true love, but would rather redefine it and refashion it in its own image and likeness to mean something other than what God actually intended it to mean. And in case you wonder what God intended it to mean, let me help you. Verse four, love is patient 
And love is kind. And love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It doesn't put itself first. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Some of you are like, you just described my ex-wife and my ex-husband. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love does not divorce itself from truth. And what we've seen happen in our culture is people wanting to divorce love from truth. Because what we don't really want is love because love will actually confront us and tell us things we don't want to hear. Love holds us accountable. Love will actually speak things that we need to hear. But we'd rather not hear the stuff that we want to hear so we make love into our own image and we fit it in its own box and we make it to look more like lust than love. He says, no, love rejoices with the truth. We've been talking about spirit and truth. It's important. Love also bears all things. Verse seven, it believes all things. It hopes all things. There's that hope factor. There's that faith factor. It endures all things. Love never ends. Now, for some of you who got married, this was like your go-to scripture, right? It's the scripture that all brides love on their wedding day, right? The love chapter. But this was written to the church, This was written to people whose lives were messy and weird like yours and mine. This was written to us. God wants us to understand what real love is all about. He wants us to be centered in this reality. This is our calling card as a church to be a people that love. Even those that are hard to love. Some of you just thought of somebody right now. (laughs) Somebody came to mind. And I don't want to make light of this because I recognize that some of you, especially those of you that have gone through abuse or pain or trauma in this area with a family member or with a friend or with a lover or a partner, we carry that, that wound, right? We carry that bag. We carry sometimes the hurts and the things that have happened to us. And it's hard for us to love because we feel like in order to do that, that we have to forgive and release them from what they've done. Can I tell you something? One of the best things that you can do is love and forgive the people that have hurt you. It's not easy. Jesus didn't lower the standard when he showed up, you guys. He actually raised it. He said, you've heard it said, do good to those that do good to you, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's all like the simple, basic, elementary stuff. But I say to you, Jesus says, love one another. In fact, love your enemies. And pray for those that persecute you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's hard. That's not easy to do, but that's the calling. And that's what the church is called to, especially in this hour, I believe. Which then leads us to do what Hebrews 10, verse 24 tells us to do. Listen to this. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love. So you can't stir anybody up to love if you can't love yourself and you can't love other people. But if we can embrace this, and begin to practice and allow this habit to be formed in our hearts and lives. Then we can stir each other up to love. And what's the product? Good works. Love and good works, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Isn't that interesting? But instead of doing that, encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our love for one another should lead to some good works, but this only happens if we don't neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing so. Why does he say this? Because people were starting to fall away from the church. They were starting to fall away from the fellowship. They were starting to fall away from the person they were unified with and his people. 
And it's so easy to do. And I'll tell you this, the last couple years have been hard for a lot of us, right? Because of COVID to gather and it got real easy there for a few moments to just kind of unplug and sit on the couch with your coffee and latte and and do online church. You guys remember online church? We did it. (laughs) I gotta tell you, I hated it. (laughs) For about a week, I was like, this is cool. And then after that, I was like, but I don't get to see anybody. And I began to think about people that I didn't get to, love and acknowledge and encourage and build up and equip. And then I began to think about how we weren't able to do that for each other. And I began to see what was happening in people's lives as we became more and more isolated, depression and substance abuse and all the stuff, right? I mean, you guys seen the statistics on this now? In 10 years, it's going to be a case study and we're all going to be appalled at what took place. But what really I think bothered me the most was I saw people walk away from their faith who never returned. I saw people leave our church who I haven't seen since. And I hope and pray they're doing well. I really honestly mean that. But he says, don't do this. Don't neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing so. But, but rather, encourage each other and, and do so all the more. Don't do less. Do more of this. Gather more. Look for more opportunities to love each other and encourage each other because the day is drawing near. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of the Lord's return. And how many of you guys know that's gonna be a glorious but also frightful day because of the judgment that comes with that reality? This is why we as a people need to make it our habit to come together in fellowship and unity, to practice this, and to do so all the more as we see that day approaching because it's far too easy to make a habit of the alternative, what I like to call casual Christianity or, or FOMO Christianity. FOMO Christianity is like, I'll keep my options open in case something else comes along. Because heaven forbid I miss out on something. You guys know anybody like that where you like invite them to lunch and they're like, I don't know, I'll see what I got going on. And they can't commit. Yeah, it's the fear of missing out. So it keeps them from committing. It keeps them nominal and casual in their commitments. Well, I see the same thing happen in church a lot of times. And it hurts my heart because I know that's not what God wants for us because that's not our standard. That's not our model. We're called to come together and all the more as we see the day drawing near to encourage each other, to stir each other up to love and to promote each other to do some good. Come on, that's what we're called to. That's our standard. When you and I gather as the ecclesia, we're doing so as the called out ones, the holy ones to stir each other up to this reality all the more, because the Bible warns us that in the last days, and I believe that we're in the beginning of the last days, according to Jude chapter one, verse 18 through 21, it says this, there will be scoffers, there will be those who follow their own ungodly passions, and it is these people who cause divisions, who are worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, and now he turns to the church, people like you and me, beloved people of God, but you build yourselves up, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in what? The love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. See, it's so easy for us to turn from love back into what? Worldly passions, uh, causing divisions, strife, not being encouraged, equipped, trying to do life alone, sitting on our couch. Now, come on. That's not who we are, courageous church where people call to encourage each other and equip each other and to help build each other up in our holy faith. See, when I get together with Tim and Jen and some of you, I start to feel my faith built up. I start to feel encouraged. How many of you guys know we live in a dark world and there's times where you just feel down and you need your brothers and sisters in the Lord to encourage you. And you can't do that when you're all alone. That's why we need each other. That's why this has to be more than just an aspirational value, but it has to be something that we practice. And all the more as we see that day drawing near. 
This is why he writes this to the church, because he wants us to take it seriously. And as pastors, it's one of the reasons that Candace and I take very seriously the calling to protect our fellowship and unity as a church. Meaning that not everybody that comes in is going to have the right agenda and the right intentions for you and for me. Some people are actually here because they want to cause divisions and strife. And these are worldly people devoid of the spirit that the Bible warns us about. And as he warns us, he wants us to be alert and vigilant, which is why sometimes we have to have uncomfortable conversations with folks who stir up gossip, who stir up jealousy, who talk crap on other pastors and other churches in the valley. Come on, we're not about that here. We're about unity. Can I tell you, a lot of the other pastors value, we, we talk to each other, we pray for each other, we gather together, we lay hands on each other, we, we're there when one of us wants to quit, come on. And you'd be surprised the amount of pastors that want to quit. In fact, more pastors are leaving the ministry than ever before. During COVID, about 75% of pastors, it was, there was a poll taken by the George Barna Research Group, and it showed that more pastors were, were ready to quit the ministry than ever before. They were entertaining the idea of, of doing something else. And they said, and they were, they were actually pulled, if they had the opportunity to do something else, they would. Why? Because they're discouraged. Why? Because they've allowed people to come in and to hijack their vision and hijack the mission of God for the people of Salt Lake City, the Mountain West, and beyond. When we are called to be a people that stand our ground, whose hope is anchored and firm in Jesus, who are built up in faith, come on, who then can love the way God calls us to love which is why we sometimes have to be protective of this. We have to fight for this because it's gonna be something that's tested. It's gonna be something that's challenged. It's gonna be something that people will try to destroy. Can I just tell you something let you in on a little secret? Not everybody that claims to be spiritual is. Not everybody that claims to be prophetic is. Not everybody that claims to be gifted is. Not everybody that claims to be righteous is. Not everybody who claims to be truthful is. There are sometimes wolves in sheep's clothing who will masquerade themselves like the enemy as an angel of light, when in reality, they're people that love darkness. And I'm thankful that we have a watchful eye and that many of you, especially those of you that lead and that serve, have a watchful eye because it's our heart to protect what God is doing here, to protect our unity. Why? Because it matters. Because it matters to God, it should matter to us, amen? Because it's holy to God, it should be holy to us. And because we love our church, because God loves his church, he loves you. So my job sometimes, I gotta, I gotta get out the sniper rifle and I gotta take out wolves and it's not fun. Sometimes you look around and you go, well, wait, where did that person go? And it just so happened to be that they had an uncomfortable conversation with Jesus and with their pastor and they chose not to honor the Lord in it. And we can't always air everybody's dirty laundry, nor do we want to. As a church, there's, there's sometimes gonna be moments where we have to just take the higher road and you're gonna be like, well, what happened to so-and-so? And so-and-so was bashing myself and bashing you behind your back and we blessed them and loved them and gave them money and served them and did everything we could in love to help them, their family, and then they went on Facebook and trashed our name. Jesus says to pray for that person, to bless that person. Could I have gone on Facebook and been like, hey, here's what's going on? Sure, but there's no honor in that. We're gonna be people of honor, but we're gonna protect our unity. We're gonna fight for that. Can I tell you something, church? There is so much more that unites us than divides us. As the people of God, as those who put their faith in Christ, Jesus is the unifier who brings us together. Social media, as great as it is, and I think it can be an amazing tool, is such an agent of chaos and division in the lives of so many. You know, over the last couple days, you know, I've seen people post against the Grammys. I've seen people post in favor of the Grammys. I've seen people rail and, and get on their soapbox about the evils and everything else. 
And I agree with that, but I've also seen people who have chosen to be light in a dark place and take a stand where it's easy for others to not take a stand. Even in matters of faith, we can be divided. Well, should I hang out with my friend at the bar or should I not? Am I called to witness or am I not? What if they're a bad influence on me or my kids, right? It's tough. The stuff we have to wrestle with, we do so in attention. There's not easy cookie cutter answers for this stuff. Sometimes the Holy Spirit says no when you feel like you've got a yes and you need to obey the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people aren't gonna understand your yes to the Lord means no to them. But on the contrary, sometimes God calls you to go into a dark place and to be a light and to shine it brightly with faith and boldness and courage that God is gonna be glorified in it even when it doesn't make sense as an outsider looking in, right? These are, these are matters of faith and life that are more complex. And I think sometimes we, we lack the nuance and we lack the ability to see things and to parse things and to trust that God is bigger than all of this. And I really believe he is. But, but, and here's the kicker, he wants us to treasure our unity with each other. And if we can't do that, what do we offer in the world? Hey, come be like us. We're just as divided and disgruntled and, and angry as you are, right? Doesn't that seem silly to anybody? So as we close out our time together, I believe one of the best things that we can practice together as a church is communion. And here's what I love about communion. It's not the taste of the wafer or the juice. It's that it reminds us that we share something more precious and beautiful and holy in common with each other. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.